0: If you would this morning, let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I know that God has a sense of humor because, you know, I thought with. Just being so mentally exhausted and checked out, I thought, well, maybe this will be a text like Jesus wept, you know, and uh, it's just not like that. We, we got a very deep subject to look at today, and in fact, uh, we're going to read through this text in Galatians, and then we're actually going to go several places in the, in the <laughs> Old Testament, and then we're going to end in Revelation and so I guess I could quite literally say I'm preaching from Genesis to Revelation today. Aren't you glad we're not coming back tonight? <laughs> and, uh, or as one preacher said, I, I heard of a tent meeting where, I mean, people were just hollering and it was, everybody was getting excited, you know, and singing was great. And the preacher gets all fired up. And when he gets in the pulpit, he says, just open your Bibles. He said, it doesn't matter where, I'll be there shortly. <laughs> but... Uh, Here in Galatians, uh, we've seen that the theme is our liberty in Christ. And the theme verse being chapter 5 and verse 1, where it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Or as Pastor Malinek says in our day, be not entangled with the woke of bondage. I thought that was pretty good. But Paul is passionately writing to these Galatian churches and these believers Because false teachers had come in and were adding works to the gospel of grace. And we've seen Paul defend the true gospel, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking in chapter 3 that Paul is really defending the gospel of grace. He is defending justification by faith alone. And we've seen that chapter 3, I think it really helps us to imagine chapter 3 is being kind of like a courtroom scene where the gospel of grace is on trial. And one by one, Paul is calling different witnesses to the stand to defend the gospel of grace. He's called the witness of the Spirit. And he appeals to the salvation experience of these Galatians. He says, were you saved by faith? Were you made perfect by the Spirit or by the works of the law? And of course, the answer is, you were saved by grace. You were saved by the Spirit of God. So now how all of a sudden are you made perfect by the works of the law? He calls the Spirit to the stand. But then last week, we saw where Paul calls the law to the stand. And he basically is cross-examining the argument of these Judaizers that said that you had to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You had to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved, even telling these Gentile men who converted to Christianity that they had to be circumcised, even to be saved. And so they were adding works to grace. So Paul says, okay, if you want to make arguments for the law, let's do that. Let's call the law to the stand and do some cross-examination. And we saw very clearly that nobody has ever been saved by the law. Nobody could ever keep the law. In fact, the law has only condemned. Only condemned. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and we can't even get past the Ten Commandments, which is God's minimum standard of human behavior. And so now today... Uh, Paul calls another witness to the stand. And we're looking at the witness of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to be preaching on the Abrahamic covenant today. And really, in order to understand this, I always say this. When you're reading the Bible, you really have to ask the question, who is the audience, the original audience that's being spoken to? It's these uh, Jewish converts who have been converted to Christianity who still have a very Jewish mindset. That's why the Judaizers appeal to them so easily, because they already have this Jewish mindset anyway. And so how would these Jewish converts, how are they going to understand and interpret what Paul is saying here? If we don't insert ourselves and put ourselves in their shoes, we're going to insert some type of 21st century Western idea to it. And so when we talk about the Abrahamic Covenant... There's not been a whole lot of preaching on that. At least my experience has been that. And so in order to understand the argument that Paul is making, you have to understand the Old Testament covenants, most specifically the Abrahamic covenant. And so we're going to walk through some of the covenants in the Old Testament to better understand the argument that Paul is making here. So let's read our text in Galatians, and I'll go ahead and interpret some things as we go because we're not going to come back once we leave. And then we'll just go from there. This is very critical, very, very critical doctrine here. Um, and ironically, not a lot of teaching on it. You look 200 years ago, and our Baptist forefathers taught on this stuff all the time, and it's kind of disappeared a little bit. But uh, let's read our text, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. <clears throat> it says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Now what, what Paul is literally saying here as he continues this argument, When he says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men, he is going to give us some human examples of what he's talking about. That's what he's saying here. He said, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one... "...and thy seed which is Christ." Christ is the promised seed. We need to remember that as we go through this. "...and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise." Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for this good day you've given us, an opportunity to come uh, preach and teach and hear your word. We thank you for our church body here. Be with those that are sick. Be with those that couldn't be here. God, I pray that you'd fill me your Holy Spirit and me of sin and self, and I pray that we would leave here understanding these texts, God, and we'll be sure to thank you and praise you for it. Take us from where we are and places where you want us to be. In Christ's name praise things, amen. So as we kind of go along with Paul's argument here, last week we saw specifically, Paul's argument was that if the law saves, then how could Abraham be saved prior to the giving of the law? He reiterates it here again. And the natural argument coming from the Judaizers would be well, okay, if if um, if somebody couldn't be saved before the law, then how could somebody be saved by Christ before Christ came? And we dissected that very clearly, that salvation has always been by grace through faith. And in the Old Testament, they had faith in the coming Savior. We have faith in the Savior that's already come. We talked about that. I'm not going to rehash that. But then the next natural argument that the Judaizers are going to try to use, and Paul is smart because he's getting out ahead of their argument. Their next argument is logically going to be, okay, but we'll give you that, Paul. Let's just say that Abraham was saved by faith before the law. Then what's the purpose of the law? Okay, faith came, I mean, salvation came by faith before the law, but by the mere fact that the law was given, it proves that God has changed his mind and now people are saved by law. So yeah, uh, that may have been true one time, but we're saved by the law now. Paul says not so fast. And so this is what he's talking about. He is saying that if God made a covenant with Abraham, and a covenant is an agreement, by the way. Uh, We're going to look at covenants of promise and covenants of condition. But ultimately, God is the initiator of every covenant. There's never been a covenant from man to God. It's always been a covenant from God to man. And the argument that Paul is making is, if God saved Abraham by promise, talking about the promise of a Savior, if He made that covenant with him and all those that would be saved by grace through faith, then Moses can't come along and change that covenant. The law does not go contrary to salvation by faith. It highlights it. It it complements one another. And we're going to see the purpose of the law next week. So that's the argument that that Paul is making here. And to understand that we have to go uh, to the Old Testament to see these things. And so let's just begin our journey here. Let's go all the way back. To Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read chapter 3 and verse 15. Now in the context, the fall has taken place. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've hid from God. He um, He has approached them about the sin. And now he is dishing out promises and punishment. And in chapter 3 and verse 15, he is speaking directly to Satan. And this is what he says to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There is so much truth in this one verse. There's no way that I could even have time to go through it all. But I do want you to know this. This is really the first promise God makes in the Scriptures, and certainly concerning salvation. Now understand the context here. Man has just sinned against God. He has hidden himself from the presence of God. He has died spiritually. Now all of his descendants after him will be born dead in trespasses and sin. And so it, it appears for all intents and purposes that Satan has won. Nobody's going to worship God anymore. Nobody's going to seek God. Nobody's going to desire God. It's over with. It's done. God says, oh, no. It's almost as if God comes between Satan and Adam and Eve, and now he is defending them as a father. He has disciplined them as a father, and now he is defending them as a father. And he says to Satan, I will put enmity. I will put separation. I will make a difference between you and the woman and between your seed, the the seed or the offspring of Satan, and her seed, the, uh, the offspring of the woman. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now this is a prophecy of several things, but number one, it's a prophecy of the cross. He's saying the seed of the woman, who is the seed of the woman? We just saw that in Galatians, right? The seed is Christ. So the ultimate prophecy here is that the seed of the woman is Christ. And he will come and although the serpent will bruise his heel. That happened on the cross. He was bruised. He was broken. But by that same bruising, by that same cross, he would crush the head of the serpent. This is a prophecy of the cross. We see the gospel here in Genesis 3 and verse 15. This, In theology, this is known as the proto-evangelion or the first gospel. The first gospel mentioned. And so, but but another prophecy here—it's actually even a prophecy of the virgin birth. You say, "Well, how do you get that?" Because a woman, biologically speaking, doesn't have seed. It's a, a prophecy of the virgin birth. It's also a promise that out of this corrupt, sinful, depraved humanity, that God promised to save sinners. <laughs> what an amazing statement from this dead, depraved humanity! I will call out and save sinners. I will make a difference between thy seed and my seed. That's what he's saying. So this is the first promise of salvation in the Scripture. And by the way, I, I just I can't be in this text and not uh, mention this. Uh, actually, a few things here. But first of all, this, this prophecy was so clear uh, that Adam and Eve understood it very well. That's why Eve wanted to name Cain, Cain. Because Cain means a man from the Lord. Maybe she thought that he was going to be that seed. He he wasn't, but she thought maybe he would be. Isn't it interesting that uh, Eve is called, Eve being the mother of all living instead of mother of the dead? That's because they were so encouraged by this promise. This prophecy is also so clear. I find this amazing. But did you know that in every ancient culture, they all share two legends, two versions, or excuse me, a version of the same two stories. That being a virgin mother who gave birth to a child who was half God, half man. Now, we don't teach that. The Bible is clear that Christ is fully God and fully man. But you understand as these stories begin to spread out and became tainted, that was their legend. That there was a, a virgin mother who gave birth to a son who was half God and half man. They also share a legend of a worldwide flood. Isn't that amazing? Now, where did those things come from? Well, the legend of the virgin mother with a half God, half man son came from a twisting or perversion of this gospel we just read about in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And the flood obviously came because there was a worldwide flood. Noah and his family get off the ark. They repopulate the earth. And their family spreads out and spread these two stories. You can read about this. There's a book by Alexander Hislop called The Two Babylons. And he names, he gives the name of the mother and the son in every ancient culture. Isn't that amazing? And I've, I've heard atheists, I've talked to atheists before that say, you know that Jesus copied all the ancient religions, right? I said, oh, no, 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 no. They copied Jesus. And they're like, no, no, those came thousands of years before Jesus has said, no, they didn't come before Genesis 3. You take them back here and that's where they got it from. (laughs) That's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? So we see this promise of salvation. I've I've got to move on to get all this in. But he promises that there will be a people from here uh, to the end that he would save and call uh, unto himself. Now we see this line, the the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the saved, we see this at the very onset. We see it in Cain and Abel, do we not? Cain was of that wicked one, and yet Abel uh, called upon the name of the Lord and put his faith in a, in a slayed lamb. Uh, we see it in their offspring. We see this line, the saved and the lost. And now, let me say this. I want to be very clear about this. Uh, because this is pretty deep stuff, some people get you know, nervous about this. And let me say this. When it comes to man and his part in salvation, we're, we're all commanded. God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. The blood of Christ is sufficient to save all. The gospel goes out to all. And as deep as we're going to go today, I want to make it clear that anybody that wants to be saved can be saved. I want to, I want to make that clear. But on the other end, salvation is a history of redemption. It is a foolproof plan of God by which He is going to save sinners. And it is, salvation is of the Lord. There's no doubt about that. I'm not going to cut either one of those truths out of the Bible. But what we're looking at today is what God does in salvation. And, you know, people look at this and they say, well, you know, if God truly could save everybody. And by the way, I want to tell you this. What you think about salvation falls into one of two categories. You either believe in a God that actually saves sinners by His power and grace and love, or you believe that God simply makes people savable. And I believe if you read the scriptural account, you'll find a God that actually saves sinners. And I tell you why that makes people nervous. Because the logical thought and implication is this. If God actually could save everybody, why doesn't He? But let me, say, let me tell you this. No matter which end of the spectrum you find yourself on concerning salvation, soteriology, labels, whatever label people want to throw out there, the truth of the matter is this. God created a universe knowing that it would fall. God created Adam knowing he would fall. God created Lucifer knowing that he would rebel. And he did not stop it. And so whatever conclusion you come to, the ultimate arrival is this, that God created a universe knowing that people would go to hell. Knowing that. Now, I don't understand all that. I'm not going to pretend to understand all that. I just tell it to you because it's true. And at the end of the day, there's some things we're not going to understand. There's some mystery there. We just cannot wrap our minds around about God. But I will tell you this. Our comfort can come from this. You can rest assured that the judge of all the earth will do what's right. Always. But what I want you to understand today is that God saves sinners. If you're saved today, it's because God saved you. Now, if people die and go to hell, it's because they rejected God. There's no doubt about that. But if you're saved, it's because God saved you. And so... Uh, We see this line here. Some would say, well, why? The the natural question is this. Why Abel and not Cain? Why why Isaac and not Ishmael? Why why Jacob and not Esau? But we're asking the wrong question. We're asking the wrong question. The the question we should be asking is, why anybody? Why anybody? And the best question of all is, Lord, why me? (laughs) You know, when we read, like in Romans 9, it makes a statement that... Uh, That God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Man, that's that's a pretty direct statement. I mean, listen, I don't know if I can necessarily explain all that, but I'm sure not going to try to explain it away. And I do believe that that hatred is a judicial hatred. It's not a personal hatred. It is the same type of hatred that a righteous judge has against a rapist. If there's not some holy, righteous, judicial anger, there's something bad wrong with that judge. And when we look at the whole of humanity, and we look at all of the wickedness all around, look at the world that we're living in today. When we look at that, we shouldn't be asking, why does God hate Esau? We should be asking, why in the world did God love Jacob? Why in the world did He love us? Why did He save us? That is the right question. And we see this history of redemption played out and you say, well, that's not fair. Let me explain something to you. Fairness is all of us being in hell. You say, well, how could we be guilty for the sin of Adam? I am going to explain this to you. This is something that I did not understand for a long, long time. But the answer is found in Romans 5 and verse 12. For by one man, talking about Adam, for by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. "...and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned." Now, how could Paul make the statement there in Romans that all had sinned when not everyone had even been born? How could he make that statement? It's because we sinned in Adam. We died in Adam. He was our federal head. He was our federal representative. He failed God in a perfect paradise. And he is representative of what every one of us would have done in the same situation. Adam and Eve get a bad rap, but I'm going to tell you something. If God would actually allow you to see the face of Adam and what he looked like. Derek, if you could see Adam, you know what you would see staring back at you? You'd see Derek staring at you. If I could see Adam, I would see my face? Scott, if you could see Adam, you'd see Scott's face. We sinned in Adam. And we died in Adam. And so, yes, God can hold us responsible. Listen, we're not just born with a sinful nature. We are born sinners. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, the wages of sin is death. Death passed upon all men for all of sin. Why do babies... If they're not born sinful, why do they die? The wages of sin is death. If we're born without a sin nature, then why does everybody in this world choose to sin? It would just stand to reason... That if there was some that were, that if we were born without a, a sin nature, then at least some people would choose not to sin. We can look around our world, we can see the cemeteries full and understand original sin is true. And so we deserve death because we died in Adam. You say, Well, Brother Brandon, do you believe that babies die and go to hell? No, I do not. But I will say this when it comes to babies and maybe the mentally handicapped, I want you to get this and hear me well. There is no such thing as the age of accountability in the Bible. I don't find it nowhere. I don't find it anywhere. And if you believe in an age of accountability, what you're telling God is, at least for a short time or maybe a lifetime, if they've got mental handicap, that God owes them something. That God owes them salvation. That God is required to somehow show them mercy. As if they've reached a place where God says, Man, I can't punish them. No. The reason that, I believe the reason that babies and the mentally handicapped don't go to hell is for one reason because God is gracious. That's it. Not because of anything we do, not because He looks at us and says, Man, I can't touch them. <laughs> not according to, to what Adam did, not according to Romans chapter 5, not according to Genesis 3 or anywhere else in the Bible. So I want you to get that. And so we see this history of redemption that we see these lines even beginning with Cain and Abel, and it continues on. And it goes to uh, the flood in uh, Genesis 6. And in Genesis 6, you go ahead and turn there. Man, I'm running behind. I'm really going to take advantage of the fact we're not in church tonight. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, we might be here at 6, brother. We might. We might go straight from a long sermon into a hostage situation. But in Genesis 6, what we find is these two lines begin to blur. You can no longer really see a distinction. And this is when God looks down. And it says in chapter 6, and verse 1, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And for the sake of time, I'm going to read all this. Uh, but I believe that the, this godly line continued by Seth began to intermingle with the line of Cain. And this is the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Now, I know this is one of the most hotly debated <laughs> chapters in all the Bible. And if, you know, even some of my favorite theologians and authors that I read after, you can split them almost 50-50 down the middle. There's some that believe and teach that, um, that the sons of God were actually angels that they had sexual relations with the daughters of men and the giants that they gave birth to were some kind of half-breed angel, human, and that God had to judge the earth. And I know that sounds crazy on the surface, but if you read about some things that Jude said and some different places in the New Testament, look back, this is actually a fairly compelling argument. Uh, This is not a fellowship issue. There's good people on both sides of this issue. But I just personally have have a hard time buying into that. I just... You know, angels physically having relationships with human women and just having like a half-angel human. I just, I can't, I can't really go along with that. I've I've kind of flipped my position on this over the years because, I mean, that's what I was taught. But I believe if you follow the biblical narrative, you have to end up and say that the sons of God were the sons of Seth and the sons, the daughters of men were the lineage of Cain, and they intermingled, all the world became wicked. And I believe that there's a natural flow here. You just have to let it read that way. Um, and so we see that God judged the whole earth, but He preserved the seed and the promise through Noah. Verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's not that Noah was good, He was in that wicked crowd too, but he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And after that, he began to walk with God, what it said here. So we see this line once again continued. Um, And then you go to uh, chapter 9, and he reaffirms this promise again. Look at at chapter 9 and verse 9. It said, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. So see, he is... He is reestablishing the covenant here. Now, there would be some that argue that God saved people in different ways and different dispensations. That's, That's not right. And, you know, I do, I really like an old Schofield study Bible. I've used one for years, but that is one area I believe he was just dead wrong. And I believe that as we see these covenants, although there are some differences, I believe every covenant is a reconfirmation and a reaffirmation of the promise that God made In Genesis 3 and verse 15. And so as we continue on, let's go to chapter 11. That line becomes blurred again. And they begin to come together as a people and try to build this Tower of Babel, which is actually a temple, um, undefaults gods is what it is. They're trying to obtain supernatural wisdom apart from God, which is the very definition of witchcraft, by the way. And so God confounds their language. He he spreads them out. Um, And I've I've got to hurry for the sake of time here. There's no way I'm going to get through all this this morning. Um, But then the line continues through Abraham. Again, even in in the midst of all this confusion. Look at Genesis 12. Genesis 12 and verse 7 and 8. It says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, Thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. And so Abram, he was a wicked pagan. He was worshiping false gods. And God supernaturally appeared to him, not because of anything he did, not because he was a good person, but because in God, in His absolute grace, uh, reached out to him, shared the gospel with him, drew him unto himself, called him out. That's exactly the way we're saved today. And he believed God, and God accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, this is reaffirmed again in Genesis chapter 15. And this is probably where I'm going to have to end today because... Uh, this is something that I really do not want to rush through, and I've got enough material for guaranteed one message, maybe two more. Um, but I will say this. We'll, we'll stop here, and next week when we come back, we'll pick it up again. And this is chapter 15. is really where we begin to get into the Abrahamic covenant. But this is what I want you to understand. Salvation is not by the works of the law. It has never been by the works of the law. That's true before the law was given. It's true during the law, and it's true now. And in Paul's argument, he is referring back to Abraham. He is referring back to the promises he made, the covenant that was sealed, the things he's done in the past to save people. You know, Abraham, um, and I'll close with this thought because this will kind of lead us into next week. Um, Abraham was somebody that the Jews really idolized. I mean, he was considered to be the father of their faith. In fact, um, Jesus had a really big dispute with the Pharisees in John chapter 8 where they were claiming, you know, Abraham's our father. You know, they were both puffing out their chest about that. And um, he basically told them that if you were of your father Abraham, you would have believed in me because he spoke of me. And... He goes on to say, and we'll see this next week and the next week after that. And here's what's really interesting. This is going to give you some food for thought this week. I told you to begin this sermon that sometimes you really need to put yourself in the shoes of the audience. And in this case, it was the Jewish converts and their Jewish mindset. What's really interesting about this is the Jews, when they thought about the Abrahamic covenant, they would have never thought that it had anything to do with anything besides their ethnic background, the nation of Israel, their people. But looking back, and based on what the apostles say looking back, it was about so much more than that. When God promises Abraham a seed, he's not just talking about an ethnic people. He's talking about a saved people. It's an amazing statement, an amazing promise. And just like Abraham was saved by grace through faith, Everybody else must come to Jesus Christ the same way, must come to God the same way, and that is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work. And so if you're saved today, you're the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. You're the spiritual seed and the spiritual line of Abraham. And the reason that we're saved today is because of the promise that God made to Satan in the garden. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between my seat and her seed. I mean, this is some really good stuff. But I want, to, I want to just close by saying, again, there's nothing you could ever do to save yourself. I said it at the funeral yesterday, if you're wondering if you're good enough to meet God in the judgment, I'm going to take that uncertainty away from you. The answer is no. You're not, but Jesus Christ is. And if you want His salvation, the Bible says, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We'll get into this more next week and really take our time and understand this. But let's go ahead and stand as she comes. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word.